All right, let's read. This is from 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us when we gather. Lord, we thank you that we are formed by your word, Lord. So, Lord, would you open our ears and our hearts, and Lord, we just invite you to speak to us. Amen. Thank you, Christine. Well, brothers and sisters, you won't believe it, but we have 12 more books left. And I'm, I'm feeling you, uh, John. I, I am, I'm feeling the fatigue at this point. I am really looking forward to being done with the overview of the entire Bible. But, we, but like I said, 12 more books. So uh, 2023 will be here soon. But what we have uh, here today in front of us in 1 Timothy is the first in a trio of books which arguably give us the most comprehensive picture of how a church should be structured. And for a baby-slash-toddler church that's trying to learn how to walk and you know, not make a mess of our diapers, uh, they, these books are kind of uh, important to us. You know, football co uh, coaches, they quote Lombardi. Uh, aspiring authors, they, uh, they, they, they uh, consult King, you know, Stephen King's On Writing, a memoir to the craft. And any pastor slash church planter worth their salt will inevitably consult the uh, pastoral epistles. And for me, uh, 1 Timothy is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Because, and I, I'll give you two reasons. Uh, one, because it's really personal, and, uh, and I'm an emotional guy, as you've probably noticed if you've been here <laughs> a few times. I'm a very emotional guy, so I love the personal nature of the book. And then uh, I love the fact that it's very practical in, in terms of uh, what we should do, how we ought to operate, and what things should look like in a church. Paul is really good at giving us quite a few things to look at and consider in terms of what it looks like to be a church. And on that personal note, I, it's really cool because Timothy uh, is, is primarily a picture of two disciples. And if you're, if you're wondering what the alliteration for this morning is, it's disciples, um, definitions, and deceptions, all right? This, uh, disciples, definitions, de deceptions, maybe disciples, deceptions, definitions, you know, you know, it's that. Um, but primarily what the book is, is, is primarily a, a letter from one disciple to another. Uh, a, a, it's uh, an old veteran minister uh, speaking to a young rookie pastor who is in some respects, maybe uh, he's, he's, he's a little buried in ministry uh, at the moment. And speaking of veteran ministers, 
uh, Bill, uh, our elder, will actually be teaching 2 Timothy next week, and he's going to provide us with a whole backstory of how Paul and Timothy became um, partners in the gospel endeavor. But what I'd like to point your attention to this morning is just the fact that their relationship was, was special. In fact, so unique so close was the bond between Paul and Timothy. You, you read immediately in the introduction that Paul refers to Timothy as my true child in the faith. My true child, his, his true son in the faith. And so from one perspective, the real power in the epistle is seen in the love that Christians can truly have uh, for one another. And I don't want to be weird about this, but I did think about John quite a bit uh, when I was uh, preparing the sermon, because as you may know, like, we, I met him when he was a little, he was a kid. Uh, he was, uh, I mean, a, he's still a punk kid, but he was, he was much younger then, and, and very much still a punk also. Actually, as, as John and Colin, those are the, I, I, I'll never forget meeting those two kids, those two punks. And it's incredible to think uh, that uh, we're doing ministry together and the rich relationship that's developed over so many years. Uh, yeah, so, and I don't, I don't think you're, it's more, we have more of a, of a brother type of thing. He's my annoying uh, younger brother uh, that I just love terribly. So, but again, not to be too weird, but I was thinking about you a lot this week, John. When you look at Timothy, it's a really a, a beautiful book because uh, you'll, you'll see that this young pastor ministering to this church in Ephesus was dealing with a lot of stress, and it was so sweet to have a, an older brother come to him when he was really deeply in need. And, and, and one wonders, well, how deep was the need for Timothy at this time? Well, maybe... Chapter 1 gives us a, a bit of a clue because it's there in chapter 1, in the, the very first half of verse 3, that Paul writes, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Uh, usually you tell someone to stay somewhere when they're kind of interested in, in leaving. And that's uh, certainly one of the considerations the commentators have come up with in terms of understanding the book. They're wondering why Timothy wanted uh, to leave. Well, in short, the young man, and he could have been anywhere from his early 30s to, to uh, early 40s. Uh, and, and, and what we know is that this young man was dealing with uh, a certain degree of stress. In fact, when you read chapter 5, verse 23, Paul sort of turns into a doctor, and he orders, uh, he orders a, pres a prescription of wine for, uh, for Timothy. And in, the, in a little parenthetical statement, maybe you're, perhaps you're familiar with it, he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your sake, for your stomach, and your frequent ailments. And so, you're getting clues when you're reading through the passage carefully that this young pastor is really, really stressed out. Uh, so stressed that uh, Paul's saying, 
hey, stay there, relax. Uh, and then, you know what? You need to start drinking a little bit of wine so you can uh, calm your tum-tums and, uh, and relax a little bit. And I, and I like that. I, I like these personal little notes in the letter. I think two, two considerations uh, around that, um, that parenthetical line, because people do so much with that. Um, one, using this particular text to approve the social side of drinking is definitely the wrong verse to use, okay? If you want to uh, you want to prove the social side of drinking, there's other verses. Um, but you have to find those yourself. Um, and two, when you consider that little parenthetical line, it's cool because we cannot deny the medicinal properties of the fermented grape, right? It's a gift. It's a gift. Now, I know that's silly, but Timothy was really, really stressed out. When he was leading this church in Ephesus, he was dealing with degrees of stress. And I think there's probably a couple things that had him up at night. Um, pastors who really care about the sheep sometimes are up at night, uh, praying and stressed and, think, and, 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 and also looking online for a new house in a different city. Um, <laughs> I've heard, I've heard. Uh, <laughs> um, but he was stressed probably for a, a couple of reasons. One affected him personally, and then the other affected uh, the entire church. We'll take, we'll take the, uh, the former. You see, Timothy was stressed because the church was viewing his youth with a certain degree of suspicion. Um, you're probably familiar with the verse. Yeah, uh, Paul tells him, let no one despise your, your youth, right? Let no one despise your youth. But, but people in the church that he was pastoring, they weren't giving him their ear and heart and even a, an opportunity to prove himself simply because he was, he was young. And perhaps you've shared that experience. You have, where you have little or nothing to offer in the way of wisdom simply because you lack the literal years of experience. It's a, here's a true story for you. Uh, once, I was, once I was sitting down with, a, with a, a brother in Christ, and I was, as a pastor, I was delivering some, some stern, loving correction. And he, he paused me uh, in the middle of that to, uh, to check my age. How old are you? And, and it was like, he, you could, he even whispered under his breath, oh, okay, yeah, you're a couple years older than me. I guess I can receive this. And I thought, well, I, I thought we were going on, you know, the authority of scriptures and the advice of Paul in terms of how we navigate sanctification. But no, his, his fact checked was, how old are you? Are you old enough to talk to me about weight, the weighty matters of faith? So you're, he said, basically, you're a couple years older uh, than me. So go ahead, go ahead and continue to proceed taking me to the woodshed, right? Um, that was the sentiment. Uh, it's always difficult being dismissed. No one likes being dismissed. But when you see it in the church context, being dismissed in church simply because you're young is a frustrating, and really it's a fruitless exercise. Um, hence the stress of Timothy. He's saying, they're not even giving me a shot just because I'm, I'm young. And I guess there's some wisdom there that the church always needs to be making space for youth. 
And, and I, yes, I understand their youth are, can be dumb, but so can, so can, uh, uh, so can the elderly, right? It, it doesn't really matter. I think generationally, uh, wisdom and stupidity, it, it, it's, it, it has no partiality. <laughs> it covers all of us, right? And then every once in a while, and again, Bill will tell us a little bit about the context of how uh, Paul and Timothy met. You'll see that this was a this wasn't just a, a, a young man who was really zealous. No, there was a lot of substance to him. There's a lot of character in this young man. And so um, may, we, may we never be that church that is, you know, grumpy and, and, tell, and is basically the, the proverbial old person saying, you know, kids, get off my lawn. You know, like, like leave me alone. May there always be space um, for youth. And, and also, like on that, uh, and additionally on that note, um, make sure you take it easy on your young pastors, all right? Um, and I only, I only say, it, say it like that because John told me I'm not allowed to call myself a young pastor anymore. <laughs> so whatever. But, uh, so take it easy on your young pastor. Um, John may be, might, might be a, a bit of a punk, but he is, he's got a lot of wisdom. Um, yeah. He's got a lot of character and substance to him, so listen to him. And, and I guess listen to your middle-aged uh, pastors, uh, too. I'll just throw that in there. But John says, I'm an old dog. Now, that was his first point of stress. His second point of stress uh, was, uh, was probably a lot more challenging because it was something that was affecting the entire church, and, and it was really creating a, a, a deep problem. You see, um, Paul was telling Timothy that he needed to go and wrestle with those who were bringing deception in, into the church. They were, they were bringing false teaching, bringing deception, and, and Paul's telling Timothy, hey, you can't idly sit uh, by and let this happen. No, you have to confront it. You have to wrestle with it. You have to get into the arena and uh, deal with this. And uh, that's exactly what he says there, again, in verse 3, while he's encouraging the young man to remain there. He says, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, Paul was calling for swift engagement with those who were spewing uh, deception. Now, we're all for Timothy doing the confrontation, but how many of you like confrontation? <laughs> Little note on my, my buddy uh, Karen, she loves it. <laughs> No, actually, she laughs because she's terrified of confrontation. And you know, if we're being honest, most people don't like confrontation. And, and, and I think all people at a certain point, there is something that we don't want to confront. There's something that we're terribly afraid of, you know, looking someone in the eye and telling them something that may be some hard but loving truth. Uh, none of us are signing up to do the hard confrontation but this is what is causing stomach pains, perhaps an ulcer, to grow in, in Timothy. He, he's got so much stress. The, the church think he's too young, 
and now he's got a bunch of people bringing in a bunch of deceptive theology, a bunch of theology that is, that is leading people f- away from Christ. And, I, and, I, and again, I sympathize with him terribly because often you want to know what a, you want to know what a pastor longs to do? Just preach and pray and hang out and love people. That's, that's, what, a, that's what a pastor wants to do. I, I just want to preach, pray, and hang out and love people. But sometimes God calls his ministers to wrestle with um, deception. And here's the long and the short of it, because this is an overview of the text. The long and the short of it is that there's a sort of theological navel-gazing going on in Ephesus. In chapter 1, Paul explains that peripheral matters had, um, and the promotion, and I quote, and the promotion of speculation rather than stewardship had become central. And at the end of the book, when you turn to chapter 6, he offers this razor-sharp criticism of false teachers and the promoting of these postulations. Um, uh, Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 6, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree, that does not agree uh, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, uh, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see, sound doctrine in this church was being substituted for speculations, and these speculations ultimately caused constant friction among the believers, and that's when you know there's something wrong in the body of Christ, when everybody's at each other, nipping or biting, um, whatever it may be, you know, if there's constant friction, something's wrong. See, Timothy was being tasked to defend and diffuse uh, all the lies that were coming into the church with right theology. And at this point, it's easy for us to read, and it's actually a temptation for us to read and say, well, good for him. God bless him in his endeavor. And good for you, John and Anthony and and Bill and, and Josh, as the elders at Union, good for you. You have been tasked to defend the church uh, and keep sound doctrine, hold sound doctrine. But I would, I would say that, that perhaps we should take the question or the thought a little further and, and ask the question, ought we not, as a collective body of Christ, all be involved to some degree of defending the faith? holding sound doctrine, and being willing to wrestle with those who are bringing deception into the church. I kind of, when, when I was thinking about it this, this morning, I was, I was thinking about it, it's, like, it's a lot like a leaky dam. Um, there, there, are, there is so much deception. There is so much that causes friction within the body of Christ. And, 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 and if you have an image of a, a, a dam, you know, it's good when you've got a couple pastors who can stick their fingers and um, plug up holes, but how much more powerful of a picture is it when the entire body of Christ is sticking their fingers in those holes and plugging them up? And I know 
Uh, not all of us are pastor theologians who spend all of our time reading the Bible and praying and doing uh, church work, but, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that all of us are theologians, and to some degree, even, even sort of like shepherds, if you think about it, but that had me thinking about uh, something that R.C. Sproul said, and it's always stuck with me many years ago. It's always stuck with me, and I, I'd like to share it with you uh, now. Because he says, uh, countless times I've heard Christians say, why do I need to study doctrine or theology when all I need to know is Jesus? My immediate reply is this, who is Jesus? As soon as we begin to answer that question, we are involved in doctrine and theology. No Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Perhaps not a theologian in the technical or professional sense, but a theologian nevertheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we are going to be theologians, but whether we are going to be good theologians or bad ones. A good theologian is one who is instructed by God. And that's an intentional challenge to the entire church that we would be uh, good theologians. And, I, and that is, I, I'm, again, I'm not telling you you all need to sign up for seminary today, but I think we should all be interested and intrigued about the doctrine that proclaims the beauty of God and his son and the spirit at work in the world. And, and how can we be a part of, uh, you know, putting fingers in the, in the dam, so to speak, that, that helps keep uh, deception at bay and, for, and from uh, permeating the church? How many of you have friends, family members, that say, well, here's what I have heard. This is what I think about God. Those are wonderful opportunities for us to bring gentle correction and, and, and bringing loving clarity to situations. But we have to know and we have to have the courage to speak. We have to have the courage to do the confrontation. So it's not just for Timothy. And before we move on, let me give you a, a helpful tool to uh, in, in understanding sound doctrine, because I don't want to just give you that and then and then and then you know bail on to the next little thought that I have. But here's a, here's a, a helpful tool uh, in, for identifying sound doctrine. Uh, John Calvin, he teaches that we can understand sound doctrine in two parts, and I'd like to offer them to you uh, today. Part one, he says, sound doctrine is that which magnifies the grace of God in Christ from which we learn where we ought to seek our salvation. The reformers framed it like this, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is, I don't, it doesn't really matter what our, our, our particular theology or preference is, that's fundamentally true about the gospel and what it declares about God. By grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. This alone is what saves a sinner. And I know a lot of people talk about all these peripheral things and get kind of distracted by them, but what it ultimately does is creates confusion in the body. We need clarity around Jesus, and sound doctrine is going to show us the person and work of Jesus, always. If you're studying sound doctrine, if it's good theology, you always have a better vision 
a clearer vision, a more beautiful vision of Jesus. You'll always be a little more blown away by the goodness and the grace of God. So that's part one. Part two, sound doctrine is that by which the life is framed and transformed to the fear of God and the practice of obedience, walking according to the law of God. In other words, sound doctrine not only will show us Jesus, but then it will show us how to pursue holiness. Um, that, that's what sound doctrine in a nutshell will do. Walking according to the law. And in fact, that's something that Paul has to cover in the epistle to Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Right? If, if one uses it lawfully. And, and here's something from Tim Keller that has always uh, helped me in understanding obedience. Because often, op- obedience, our response to the gospel is often misunderstood in the church. Either it, get, it goes either very religious or gospel-centric. And here's what uh, Tim Keller said. Tim Keller said, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I, I obey, therefore I, I, I'm accepted. That's what religion says. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. So I'm going to do these things, I'm going to follow these rules, and then God will accept me. But we know the gospel does not proclaim that. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I obey. I'm, ter- I'm loved by God as I am. I'm sure there's, there's, a, there's a long process of sanctification that will take place in my life. There will be growth. There will be change. There will be things I must repent of and bring under the holiness of God. But it all starts from that place of being completely unconditionally loved by God. And when you understand those two differences, it changes everything and how we live our lives before the Lord. And basically, that's what Timothy is doing in in Ephesus. He's teaching Christians to operate out of being loved first and obeying from that place. Letting their work come from worship. That's the way I've always understood it. We, we do need to work. There's a lot of work to do. But that work must come from worship. Come from being loved. And any of you, if you've ever had a human relationship where you are just loved, no matter who you are, what you've done, and how much you've blown it, you know, that is truly a beautiful thing. And I'm a father, uh, two children. Uh, one has gone to be with Jesus, and that's you know, the sweetest relationship I think you can have humanly possible is to, is to know all your child, know all their mess, and, and love them uh, through it all. Right? It's beautiful. I, I don't know. And, and, then, and then, again, think about that uh, finite relationship, imperfect relationship, and then, and then uh, try to parallel that to God's love for you and me, loves you terribly, inexplicably, inexplicably. Uh, he, it's, it, there's no words, there's no way to understand just how uh, secure we are in, in Christ. And the gospel declares that assurance beautifully so that we can have perseverance, so that in this life, 
we don't lose hope and we don't throw in the towel and we don't quit. Because when we are, here's, here's, how, and here's another way to determine whether or not we are listening to the sound doctrine of the gospel in our life is, is often we want to quit when we think, uh, when we're looking at uh, life through a, a religious uh, uh, paradigm. You know, when, when we have to, when we think we need to do more for God, we are failing him, and, and, and we think, oh, he must be terribly disappointed, or I must be disappointed in my church at least, right? Um, when we do that, we're thinking from a religious perspective, and that kills all the worship and gratitude in our heart. So anyway, um, good doctrine. Good doctrine inevitably leads to good practice, and this is what, this is what, Paul is telling Timothy to do. It's almost like he's resetting him in the ministry. He's like, he's like a, go back to your defaults in the gospel, relax a little bit, drink some, a little bit of wine, and, and, and go teach. Go teach, go confront this deception. You know, I know, I know, uh, you, know what, you know, those guys, they don't think you're old enough, but, you know, you'll be fine. But don't leave, <laughs> right? First thing is, you just got to stay. And, and I tell you what, that, that line has always been, meant so much to me personally. Remain in Ephesus. I don't know how many times I've, I've felt the Lord saying, stay in, uh, stay in Taiwan. It was, stay there. Stay in Taiwan. S- stay in the Philippines. Uh, st- stay in um, Bisbee. Oh, that was rough. Oh, B- Sierra Vista. Stay in Sierra Vista. That was one. Bis- stay in Bisbee. That, that was the hardest one. God, no, I don't want to stay in Bisbee. Uh, and now, and now, now I've heard the Lord say, stay in Prescott. You've got to stay. And I say, oh, all right, okay. So, you don't have to, yeah. Oh, that's sweet. That is so sweet of you. <laughs> um, but that's, that's, that's what I love about this letter the most. And it's why I thought about John so much as I'm studying it, because it's so personal. And the church, when it is really operating as the church, it will be deeply personal. It will be, you will make the deepest relationships, even sometimes beyond what you have with your your biological family members. But we'll get there in a a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself uh, because I'm probably getting a little excited. The letter, as I said, has a great personal uh, note to it and personal nature to it, but it also, it's, it's so practical. And that's why it's helpful for a pastor. For a young pastor, an old pastor in ministry, you don't always know what to do. And any pastor who is trying to front and pretend like they've got it all figured out, oh man, they really got to figure out the gospel. Like just relax and chill out a little bit. But, but, the, but the good news is that the pastoral epistles are designed for ministers to really just, you know, really understand what to do in practical in a practical sense. Now, like I said, we have a lot of, uh, we, we, have, we have a limited amount of time, a lot of text, so I'm not going to go into it this morning, but I'm going to give you a really fast overview of all six chapters. Promise is going to be short. I can even see it right now in my notes. Chapter one, Paul gets into the law. Says it's good if one uses it lawfully. He gets into his personal life. One of the best verses is when he considers him, himself the chief of all sinners. That's the kind of leader you want. The one who thinks he, who believes he's a big sinner. Um, and then he uh, even uh, doles out a little church discipline. He, he, he delivers 
Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan. And that's something you don't want to hear in church. Hey, I'm just, we're done. I'm delivering you over to Satan. Okay, that's just chapter one. Uh, chapter two, he covers prayer. And it's, and it's a beautiful, really uh, um, very concise, but, but um, rich and robust perspective on prayer. Uh, he talks about the quiet life of a Christian, uh, how one has true impact in the world, God's heart for all of humanity, and then he gets into roles for men and women in the church, which has caused much controversy in the reading. Chapter 3 covers qualifications for elders and deacons, and really, if we're looking at it um, hermeneutically and interpretively, it probably delivers the core message of the entire letter, which is what Christine read this morning is the core message, the core understanding that, that, that uh, Paul wants Timothy to have um, for the church. Chapter 4, Paul elaborates on the aforementioned deception uh, per- pervading the church and how to remain faithful to Christ in all of it. Chapter 5, in the context of church, he tells, he tells him how to treat uh, brothers and sisters, how widows ought to be um, loved and cared for, and then, of course, uh, how to deal with elders um, in terms of how to um, uh, remunerate them, which is pay, pay them, pay their bills, or how to get rid of them. That, that's, that's, a, that's, that's in uh, chapter 5. And then finally, in chapter 6, he covers slaves. And I'm not, I'm not punting on this because we'll go through Philemon, and we'll talk about that uh, when we get there. I'm teaching that one, so... I love Philemon. And then, and then he talks about the potential pitfall of riches, the gift of contentment, and the call to guard the good deposit of the gospel. That, in a nutshell, is 1 Timothy. Are you guys impressed that it didn't, didn't take too long? Yeah, yeah? Thanks, thanks. I appreciate that. That's, that just seems insincere, but all right. Um, <laughs> uh, So there's lots of definitions for Timothy to aid him in navigating uh, church uh, leadership. And what I would encourage you, because we'll be in the pastoral epistles for three weeks. Uh, Like I said, I'm I'm doing 1 Timothy, Bill's doing 2 Timothy, and then John will do Titus. What I would really encourage you, challenge you, and 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 actually I'm asking you, because I think it would be a good exercise for the church, is read through the passages. Because it's not easy reading very challenging, in fact, and it's created many questions throughout the church age. Read through them and mark some things to sit down with your elders to talk through. So find Bill and talk through some stuff with him. Find Josh. Josh back there. Find him. Talk with him through some stuff. Find John, myself. We love to talk to you about uh, union and how we understand the pastoral epistles and how it's all implemented in our church. Okay, so that's my challenge to you. So, I'm le- so you have to leave with homework. I'm sorry, but you have a little bit of homework. Um, but do that, I, I, and I really mean that. I sincerely mean that. Um, but as we, you know, as we bring a close to the book and the teaching and all that, what's really important about Timothy. But really, let's be honest, what's really important about all of Scripture is that we don't lose sight of what God's truest intention is when we um, read these, 
these words and we develop sound doctrine for ourselves. Um, and actually, to Timothy, Paul gives him this beautiful line out of chapter 1, verse 5, and he says this. He says, this is why I'm writing to you. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm telling you to wrestle with these, with these, uh, with these deceptions. I'm telling you to stay, even though you're pretty stressed out, uh, uh, Timothy. I want you to stay because our aim, the aim in all this, is love. Love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's threefold. Again, we won't go into it, but it's love. How many of you guys get, have, how many of you have been frustrated when, when uh, one of your brothers and sisters come to you and, they, and, and it's like, where, where are you at doctrinally? And it's like, well, hey, my name's Anthony. I grew up in a, I grew up in a small town called Bisbee. You know, it was interesting. I, I couldn't wait till the Lord delivered me from that place. Um, you know, I say, let's, let's, let's talk. Get to, let's get to know one another. But, but some brothers and sisters is just like, what's your, what do you believe? Do you, do you fit in my, in my systematic theology? And if not, uh, I'm just getting ready to, to, to chop your head off, right? You see, guys, doctrine that does not develop love is not sound. And, and, and here's the thing that's so confusing about doctrine is that some people can have such a, articulate such a beautiful doctrine, such a beautiful theology, and, and they don't have any practice of it. So you can tell somebody you love them, but, if, but there's no evidence of it. It really is an idle thing. And that's, that's a shame, and I even say that to my own shame, because I remember, because I remember John a few weeks ago talking about cage stages for Christians. All of us go through cage stages when we discover a new piece of theology, when we, when we see another jewel of the riches of Christ Jesus. You know what I mean. Those of you who have studied theology, seen something beautiful about the gospel, and you gather this jewel, and you're saying, it's so precious. Now I have to tell everybody about it, and they need to know everything about it, and if they don't, there's something wrong with them. During that season, you literally need to be locked up in a cage until you can understand how grace informs the rest of that beautiful jewel, right? The rest of that beautiful jewel. And it's such a shame when we have sound doctrine, but we have no love to back it up. And in fact, are we still doing the, the, the churches in Revelation, John? Are we doing that? And we're going to do that in 2023. And you'll see Jesus assess his church for what, for what they're doing right and then what they're doing wrong, how they're blowing it. And, and if you're humble and honest, you'll look at each one of those churches and say, yeah, I have been there in particular seasons. In fact, I'm thinking of stories now, but they're not my stories to tell. So, uh, so I've just got to keep them locked, locked in. But they're great stories. Um, but doctrine that does not develop love is not sound. And that's what, isn't it interesting that Paul leads in the letter with this? Like he's got the, like, Paul, that Timothy's got to go and confront this deception. But he says if, 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 it, if it doesn't have love in it, it's, it's noise. That sounds like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? And we can, we can, we can, Speak with the, the tongues of angels. We can, we can deliver all prophecy. 
but we have not love, we become a clanging cymbal and a sounding gong. Just noise. Bunch of noise to the Lord. And, th- and this is why we circle back finally to the core message of the text, because it's there in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. I'll read it. Christine read it for us. But it is, it's why Union Church exists, just in case you're wondering. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how to, you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then he says this about Jesus. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Not to get too, not, not, I don't want to get too wordy, but and I don't want to keep you here too, too long. But there's two observations we have to, we have to grasp in this core section of the, of the text because we need to see that the church is a house with a high, high view of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the church that Jesus passed on to the apostles. That's the church that Paul gave, and the rest of the apostles, and Paul gave their lives for. To view it as a house and have a high view of Jesus Christ. You might find this interesting, but theologians for many years have been debating over the household motif in the New Testament. Um, The question is, is is this a metaphor? Is household language in the scripture, is is it meant to be a metaphor or is it to be taken literally? Uh, the idea of the church being a household is presented in 1 Timothy, um, Galatians, and the Ephesians. And to be succinct, I'm going to quote you a long um, quote from Lee uh, Eklov on, you know, really where, where I land and I think the, t- the, the Bible takes us. It says, it has been right before our eyes in the Bible all along. Scores of references to brothers and sisters to God as our Father, to Jesus as both our bridegroom and elder brother, to the essential loving unity of God's family, and to the household environment of holiness, spiritual nurture, and safety. Paul taught Timothy how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. He told the Ephesians, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but also citizens with God's people and also members of, its, of his household. Pastor and writer Mark Buchanan uh, affirms this. Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. The Father gives us the spirit of adoption to whom we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, Jesus asks who his mother and brother and sisters are and answers that they are all those who do the Father's will. From the cross, Jesus says to the disciple John, and his mother Mary, behold your son, behold your mother. And he, it's, he says that our loyalty to him must transcend biological attachments. That's beautiful, right? That's, that's pretty. And, and it's, not, it's not like it's, it's not like we're reading Shakespeare or, or Lewis there. It's not like beautiful oratory. It's telling us the facts of what the scripture says about 
about the church. And what the scripture says about church is that it's beautiful because it's, a, it's actually a family. And for, for us, depending on what kind of family we have, it is, it, is a, it is an exponentially more beautiful picture because for some of us, this is actually the only place where we really have true community and love. But the, but the church, uh, and especially, even and especially with all its foibles, is a family. All of us with our biological families who love each other and there's so much history and, and frustration, you know exactly what I'm talking about. God is saying that is how we should take that application to the church. Because the, the church is, I don't want to get too, I don't want to soapbox or anything, but we're a hot mess. And we're not always the easiest people to, to get along with. And I'm including myself in that. Um, you know, sometimes you have to sit through stinky sermons. I'm sorry, it just is. But when we do that, when, when we commit to the, the, the family vision of, of the church, it's amazing what God builds in the midst of that. Like true love, right? True love. And we, yeah, we'll keep working on sound doctrine. We'll, still, we'll continue to have that high view of Jesus, but, but we have to see ourselves as a house. A few weeks ago, uh, John, Karen, uh, Beth, and I ate uh, tacos at a restaurant called uh, Taco Guild. Highly recommended. Good, delicious tacos. I mention it because it's located in an old, an old Methodist church in the valley, which built, was built in 1893. It's really weird. A little sidebar, but it's really weird when you're biting into a barbacoa taco and you see the nail-pierced arms of your Savior staring at you through a stained-glass window. Just a weird feeling. That has nothing to do with the sermon, just like that's what I was thinking as I'm eating my taco. There's our Lord um, doing hard things, and I'm eating a taco. <laughs> I tell you what, I've been thinking about this a lot. Actually, ever since, ever since we went to this this uh, restaurant, I can't escape the question, like, what happened with his church? <laughs> what happened with his church? Because uh, when did the love of Christ for one another, love for Christ and love for one another, exit their gathering? Or did they always intend that on ultimately becoming a taco joint? And I mean that sincerely, and, and also jokingly, because I don't, I'm not a serious person either. Promotional idiot, but uh, that's another thing. Um, of course they didn't intend when they were drawing up their, uh, their doctrinal confession. Of course they were looking to become a taco, a really good taco joint. I mean, it's really weird when you look at the altar in this old building, and it's and and guy is shaking up margaritas. It's, it's it's just sobering. Because clearly, this is not what Paul called Timothy to, when he told him to stay in Ephesus. This is this is why it's hard to plan a church, and see it flourish, 
and why it's even more difficult to see it have any, um, any real life. Any, you know, I love, you know, this is something that Josh says, so you get the credit for that. Is I remember when we first had our first meetings around starting union, and I was coming up from Bisbee to meet with these guys. Uh, uh, Josh kept saying, it would be great if we could, you know, we could live past 100 years. You know, my hope is that y'all, including myself, would die, and then we would have a, a, a rich, thriving, robust, Christ-loving family that remains long before all of us are gone, and that we wouldn't turn into a taco joint. <laughs> but I guess the, the proverbial question around that is, are we going to really see Christ's vision, see Christ and see Christ's vision for the church as we as we gather together. That's really the challenge of First Timothy, is we're going to have a big, beautiful picture of Jesus and his people. And so I would challenge you and compel and encourage, wherever that needs to land in our hearts, to develop deep relationships with Jesus and with one another. I would even challenge you to develop a deep relationship with someone that you perhaps wouldn't normally spend time with. Whether that's generationally, whether that's culturally, whether that's, um, you know, worldviews that are, that, don't, that, are, that are really minor issues, have nothing to do with the gospel, um, you know. It, it's fascinating what you learn. It's, why, it's one of the reasons I love the church, is I've made so many family members I have, a, I have a global family that in, in, in some ways I know personally because of this, God has given me the gift of seeing that vision. And, while I'm, and why I'm jokingly foolish enough to keep doing this thing called pastoral ministry. Um, but really that's a question. I think the only question is what kind of, what kind of family is union? And when people come here, do they want to join it? Or do when they get here, do they would say, oh, no, it's not for me. Now, that's fine. That's okay. That's, that, that's normal. But, let it, but may it never be because we don't love Christ and one another. That's it. Let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, we love you. Um, God, we thank you for your grace in our lives and I, I thank you for these interesting books where so much information is, is exchanged and, and, and if we read it carefully enough and, and your Holy Spirit gives us the grace to see it, we see just how um, personal and powerful, practical, and, and um, how it's so necessary, not just for Christians thousands of years ago, but for us today as well. And so God, help us to implement your vision of the church and thank you, Jesus, for dying for her, making us a, a part of her. Um, thank you, God. We love you, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.